This is Perspectives, the show where a conversation about our differences will often show us how much we actually have in common. I'm Condis Presley. Beginning this month, Ancestry is expanding the records collections on Ancestry.com to explore more Black family histories. Now, while Ancestry already has extensive records that have helped the Black community to develop detailed family trees, this month they will be adding records from the Freedmen's Bureau, the Danish West Indies, and other important documents that can help trace family roots even deeper through slavery in particular. My guest is Nika Sewell Smith. She is a Black genealogist with extensive experience researching our community. Welcome to Perspectives, Nika. Thanks for having me. And I love the conversation we had at the beginning about the proper pronunciation of our names because they're, you know, story of our lives, right? Right, absolutely. And and that's one of the ways that our ancestors were able to preserve our family history was through naming. You know, people often forget, right? A lot of folks will go through life having this name. And my family, Susie, is that name. And, you know, it became a, nick, a nickname for some people, became a middle name for my sister. It was my grandmother's mother's name. We all thought we were naming everyone after her. We were actually naming everyone after her grandmother. And until we had done the family history research to find that out, we 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 didn't we didn't know. It just it was a it was a more recent thing. But you know, despite you know not having access to to equal education and literacy, naming patterns was one of the ways that our ancestors left our lineage to us when they didn't have the ability to write it down. It is Black History Month as we have this conversation, and many families would like to know their origin story, but. For many of us, it can be a challenge. You may be able to go back two or three generations, but then we get stuck, we get discouraged. I'm sure you get this question all the time. What do you do? Well, in that situation, I always suggest to people, do not give up. Don't believe that there are not records that document people who are of African descent, especially within the United States. It just may be because of things like, again, literacy, right? Um, people not having the ability to read or write or even know exactly how their names are spelled. You're trusting people such as census takers, enumerators, even people at the local courthouse who are going in and documenting your family, whether it's for a deed to transfer land or property, or even a death certificate. You're trusting them to spell your names correctly, whether it's a last name or, you know, it's a given name, right? And so sometimes even something as simple as Smith can have an I instead of a Y, you know, a Y, or it could be with a Y instead of an IE, right? And just those small little things like that can throw people off. So number one, don't give up. Remember that spelling is not always going to be exactly what you think it is. Even though your grandmother may have said it is K-I-Z-Z-Y, that's it. That's no, there's no other way she spelled her name. Again, we're having to rely on people who are maintaining records documenting our ancestors. So sometimes they would spell things out phonetically and that you know, that creates a hurdle for researching. The other thing is, especially if counties or parishes where your family lived, if the boundary lines change, and if for one set of records, they lived in one place, and then because of gerrymandering later on, maybe five years later, now they're in another county, and you don't know to look for them there because the boundary lines change. That's one thing that's very simple that some people just, you know, they just don't think about. Also, um, it could be natural disasters, right? Let's say there was a big flood that happened, right, on the Mississippi Delta. People, millions of people were displaced. And so as a result of that, they may not be documented in the communities that, that they were in previously. 
You also may have things like um, maybe even, you know, more cat sort of catastrophic events or emotional events that were racially related where wide swaths of people would leave a particular location and move to somewhere, you know, to somewhere else entirely, right? So all of these things complicate doing research, but they just, they, they really do add the, the full breadth and spectrum of the American experience that comes, you know, from a Black perspective. So again, don't, don't give up, right? Um, just, just you have to be kind of persistent and and really kind of obstinate in some ways because it, there's this yearning within us, right? There's this quote I heard from Alex Haley that talks about us having this bone marrow deep yearning to know who our ancestors are. And so you have to really tap into that marrow sometimes, especially when there's challenges regarding records and trying to find people. For people of color, specifically the black community, is this kind of research easier to do in certain parts of the United States than it is in others? All of that has to do with access issues. How open is the state in terms of the archives, right? Usually those are run by secretaries of state and how willing are they to um, allow their records to be accessed online or in some ways even in person? And then beyond that, how, uh, how much investment have they made in making those records accessible outside of actually having to come to the, to the archives, right, to visit them. A lot of us are in our ancestral great, great migration locations. We're, we may not necessarily be in the places that our families originated from, right? And so we're doing this sort of remote research. And when the investment hasn't been made, and then also a state may not be as open to allowing the records to be available more widely, it creates more challenges for us because then we're, oh gosh, I tried to find a death certificate. Well, I couldn't find it online. Well, that's because that state is not as open as others. So yes, access and you know just being in a particular state does make a difference and it, and it can impede research. And I think a lot of that has been exacerbated by what we're seeing with the pandemic where, you know, those who have the resources maybe could hop you know, into a plane or a car and drive to some of these locations. Well, now we're hampered and we're really reliant on having access to things remotely. What is the Freedmen's Bureau and why is it significant that those records are being added to the Ancestry.com database? The Freedmen's Bureau is short for the Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen and Abandoned Lands. And this is something that was set up by Congress through the War Department. And it really, the operations began as the war was starting to end. It actually, they actually began before the war was over. And these documents for a lot of people are the first time they're seeing their formerly enslaved ancestors documented on paper, even before the, the census of 1870, which is where, you know, the majority of people of African descent, whether they were free or enslaved before the Civil War were documented. And you're going to find things within there like rations, uh, clothing, um, you know, uh, allowances, labor contracts between former slaveholders and their formerly enslaved or even people who came from the north down to the south and started leasing land on abandoned you know, plantations and then hired a workforce who were formerly enslaved people. You're going to find things like murders and outrages where they are documenting, you know, uh, just lynchings and um, community events that, that, that are, that, that these agents that are in these field offices are seeing within their eyes, right? Our country was in turmoil. There was a lot of famine. There, it was a lot of upheaval, right? Um, a lot of uh, planters and, and slaveholders in southern, southern locations left their plantations with the overseers and fled to states like Texas, right? So you have a huge workforce who's, who's like, what are we going to do? 
right? And so the Freedmen's Bureau through field offices, through districts, through state level folks, and even national people, they basically came in and, and administered all of these services. I mean, they even married people. They had courts. If they thought someone couldn't get a fair trial for an incident, they would, um, you know, they would, they would have courts that they would have. They would even um, give people the ability to marry other people. They would also serve as an agent for uh, getting back pay and bounty payments for U.S. colored troops. All of that stuff went through the Freedmen's Bureau up until it, it until the operation ceased in 1872. So it was really, in some ways, a huge social service program that was specifically geared towards refugees who were also indigent whites. These are these were white people who were poor and had no resources, right? That's the refugees, freedmen who were formerly enslaved. And then of course that would also include free people of color if they had needs and abandoned lands. All of that falls under, under that umbrella. And tell us more about the additional records from the West Indies that have been added. So the records from the West Indies are incredible because they document the enslaved people who are in what is now the U.S. Virgin Islands. You always want to get to the, the original source documents that list names of enslaved people. It, it's a challenge nationally, like, you know, continental United States to get to because you have so many kind of layers. You know, you need a clue this from here and a clue from there. With this collection, you're going to see things like the names of the enslaved, who their slaveholder was, where they lived, their ages, genders, like all of that stuff is included in this collection. And it's very similar to what we would probably find in records like maybe slave lists or even estate inventories or wills or probates stateside. Um, it's a lot of stuff that that's like that. So with these additions, that just creates even more resources to help Black families build out that family tree. Tell us about some of the existing resources that you'd find at Ancestry. Right. So the, the first record set that most people dive into is the U.S. Census. That's that's a consistent document, a consistent record set that happened every 10 years. And while we only have the most recent one we have available to us is 1940, that's until next year when we get 1950 because there's a privacy hold on it, people typically will use the census to, you know, um, see ancestors documented together in households, like, you know, young, you know, grandparents with their parents or even grandparents or great-grandparents in the same household. You can find things out about, you know, what people um, did in terms of for jobs. Did they own their land? How much money they, they made? Did they own a, a radio? Uh, the highest level of education they got, right? So usually most people start with census records. They also go through vital records, you know, birth and marriage and death certificates. Even obituaries are incredible sources of information. Things like marriage announcements that are in the newspaper, newspapers, right? Even if you lived in an area or your ancestors lived in an area where they didn't have a lot of news about Black folks, a lot of papers would have a Negro news section that just talked about what was going on in the Black community. And then we have our mainstay national Black press, like the Pittsburgh Courier, the Chicago Defender, right, where you're seeing all these incredible little things like, you know, Condis moved from Atlanta to Jackson, Mississippi last week. And you're like, this is so mundane. Like, why do we care about this? But we do, because there was no Facebook, there was no Twitter, there was no Instagram to shout out to the people that Condis was, was no longer in Atlanta. Like the people needed to know these things. So when you combine all of those things together, right, along with what you've gathered from your own personal memory, around who's related to you, how they're related to you, you know, search the home repository, which a lot of people forget that they have stuff at their house. 
if you're like me, my grandmother was the funeral attending woman. Okay. I don't, I don't know if there's another woman who went to more funerals than my grandmother, but she would literally send us a stack of, of, of programs 15 deep. And I'm like, mom, who are these people? And I would just be reading through them, but they were great because they chronicled all these different folks in her life. You probably have a funeral maven in your own family who's been keeping these programs and doesn't know who to give them to. They're full of information, right? Beyond the, they confessed to hope in Christ at an early age. You're going to see where the people went to school. You're going to see where they went to church. You're going to see all of these things. Look at the pallbearers who carried the casket. They could be cousins. They could be neighbors, right? And so our, our, you know, our whole thing really should start at home from your own memory, from the memory of, of older family members or even family members, even a nosy neighbor or aunt, a fictive kin, an aunt who remembers all of the family history and goings on, right? And then you, then you dive into the records like the census, like the vital records, like military and draft cards where you can see the signatures of your ancestors. How tall were they? Were they missing limbs? Or, you know, I mean, you get all these really interesting kind of things, but they all, all of it comes together to, to create a family tree. Our guest is Nika Sewell-Smith. She's a Black genealogist with Ancestry. She's got extensive experience in researching Black communities. Where did this passion for this research come from in you? For me, it actually started going to family reunions. We've been having them my entire life. My mother's generation started them. And it was a way for us to just commune every you know, two years together as a family. And I, one of the first things I remember reading was a family tree that one of our cousins put together. And I was questioning my mom, you know, mom, where's this kid at that's my age? Where do they live? You know, I just couldn't wrap my mind around that I had this, all this family that lived in all these different places. And um, I, I was under the impression that my cousin um, was keeping this, this information up and he, he wasn't, he had kids, he was, you know, he was living his life. And so I said, well, let me take it over. And at that time is when, you know, the online environment for doing research just really exploded. And so where he had to go to the National Archive to go and do research, you know, and go to the courthouse, you know, pretty much immediately, I could be at home and, you know, log into Ancestry, log on to online sites and, and access some of the same information he had, but also have access to more because, you know, the, the sky was really limit with the internet. And so, you know, I literally started this when I was in college. I, I thought, you know what, I want to keep us all connected when we don't have a reunion. I want to find more people. And, and now we are well over 4,000 people. I've put together eight volumes of family history. Um, the last reunion we had, which was a couple years ago, I actually got the tree printed out and it was 48 feet. It took up an entire wall um, in the banquet hall. And, and that was, for me, that was kind of like a, it was a really, it was an, a kind of an emotional moment because, you know, I loved seeing everyone walk in that room and try to find their name. And then they would ask me, well, where am I at? And I'll say, you're in the blue spot, you're in the blue section, or you're in the orange section. And they would go through this painstaking process of finding, oh, there's my aunt, there's my dad, oh my gosh, there's my name. And, and for, as a Black family to have that, to be able to trace back to 1807 and to have those names of our ancestors, that to me, that was probably the best gift I could have given any of them. Can you share with us more tips and tricks to how to get started, how to stay with it, and how to be as successful at it as you have been with our own families, though not with all of the training that you have to do this? 
Right. And so again, stay the course. You want to let the technology work for you. I think a lot of times where we may be fearful, especially if we have things like hints on Ancestry, when, you know, we start to, to input information and we're not sure if it's the right person or the right thing, always look at all of those things. Regardless of how much experience I have, I still use hints. I had a scenario uh, recently where there was a family member that I had lost. You know, I didn't know where this person went and I got a hint for a marriage license in Nebraska. And I said, there is no way that this is this man. It's impossible. When I actually looked at it, it was him. And because I had that link, I then tracked him to New York and he, was a, he worked for the railroad and that's how he got there. And I found his whole life, he was in the newspaper you know, in, in plays, they had a whole, they had a whole, you know, write up on him, a whole profile on him, right? So let the technology work for you, right? Definitely look at those hints. You want to go back to some of the early stuff you found as well. I felt, I feel like a lot of people just gather a lot, but sometimes they don't go back to some of those initial things and just reread, right? There's a lot of information on records that we're getting, especially the census. It's a huge, you know, a document where every column is telling you something different and there may be clues, especially when you're looking at things like the 1900 or 1910, where it literally tells you if men were in the Civil War and which side they fought on. A lot of people don't even realize that. You might have been sitting on a, a Civil War veteran that had a pension, which is another incredible resource for researching formerly enslaved people, because when they enlisted, they had to a lot of times say who their former slaveholder was. There were people who gave depositions right on their behalf there are even photos and those things right so again stay open look at your hints go review things that you've already you know that you already may have come across maybe engage with other people that are connected to your family to see if they maybe know a little more than you do you know of course always is the basics stick stay the course start with yourself you know, go back as far as you can remember, then enlist your family members that may know a little more than you, and then, then begin the process of searching by going online and filling in the dots. Maybe you don't have a birth date or a location for a particular person. Well, maybe you let the census provide you with that information. And then, you know, continue to gather and just keep on the lookout for record collections because things are being expanded all the time and they're being added all the time. So where it may be that there may not be a lot available for a particular area right now, in a week, two weeks, that could completely shift or change. Because of Black history in the United States, we could go through this process and discover that we have white relatives. When you find out that you do, do you encourage or discourage following that hint, making that connection? Yeah, this is, a, this is one that, this is just the nature of our country and our history, right? And so I always tell people, go with what feels good in your gut. If you feel like you are ready to handle finding that information and, and that emotionally you're going to be fine with that, then pursue it. But, but you will know, you know, when it's time to put it down, you'll know when it's time to maybe step away for a little bit and maybe wait. You know, the other thing we have to think about is not just finding those ancestors, but their descendants as well. And, and if we want to have relationship with those folks or maybe not, right? It really all depends on what your comfortability is. For me, I've been able to work in tandem with a lot of uh, the folks who are researching our shared ancestors who may be, 
you're of European descent. And then I've also worked with folks that I've had to tell them that they descend from African people and they did not know that they did. So it really goes both ways. And that's just that's just the fabric of what our country is, right? Where where it may not have been obvious at the onset as, as our level of importance. I like to I like to think of these scenarios as literally the thread that holds together the stars and the stripes. Right. And it's at, on at, you know, at glance, right. If you're watching that flag on the pole, you can't see the thread, right. You see the stars and the bars. But when you take that flag down and you look at it really closely, you see that thread. And those threads are made up of stories like this that aren't, you know, that aren't really loud and, you know, right, right in your face, at least, at least initially. So um, again, go with your gut, go with what feels comfortable. A lot of times people will ask me like, how, what do you, what message do you send the person that's over that tree with that ancestor? Like, what do you say? And I'm like, I'm just myself. I'm just honest. I'll say, this is where I think our connection is. I've researched this. Here's my proof. You know, if you would like to correspond with me, yes or no, or sometimes they reach out to me before I can even get to them. So it's to me, unless we really treat and deal with this aspect of our history, we're really missing so much. And we're, we're really missing an opportunity for us to learn more about each other and our country unless we take these steps. Nika, we are almost out of time, but I wanted to make sure you told us about this new program that you're hosting and how can we find it? Yeah, so I'm super excited. We're going to have a program that's going to be launching um, Care of Ancestry called Questions and Ancestors, where I'm going to sit with some incredible people and talk to them about their unique family histories that are related to Black and African-American genealogy. And, and there's, oh, the sky's really the limit with this because I think a lot of times we think that everyone has the exact same narrative, right? Oh, well, we all came from enslaved people. No, there are a lot of people who did not come from enslaved people. They came from free people of color. You know, there, there are people who have ties to, uh, to Native American groups that identify as Black. There are people who outwardly, phenotypically don't look Black, who are, you know? And so our stories are so wide and varied and, and, and they're really, they're super American. You know, I mean, you just, to me, you can't get more American than Black history. <laughs> so I'm excited to really kind of dig into uh, these stories and have these conversations and really just engage and provide a space where where we can just learn about American history from a vantage point that is just so much more needed and, and beyond Black History Month, right? Beyond the confines of 28 days or even a week or, or, or any of those things, right? You know, I had a conversation earlier when I said, you know, we don't say, oh, we're not gonna talk about American history outside of July 4th, right? We never say that. Who, that's preposterous. Why would anyone say, we can't talk about American history outside of July? So we should also think about things from that perspective when we're talking about the diversity that is American history. Don't confine it to a month. Don't even confine it to a year. It's every day. It's 365. Was there anything else that you wanted to share, something that I didn't think to ask? It is possible to trace your enslaved ancestors. I think that's probably one of the biggest myths that, that it gets perpetuated. You know, that there were no documents, that there is no way to trace people or even to potentially get back to Africa, right? we're able to do some incredible things now, again, due to records access, being able to, you know, be at home and, and be able to go through these records. Now, granted, it, there are challenges because for some people, it's as easy as maybe finding a slave narrative with their ancestor recounting their experience, right? Being enslaved. For others, you know, like me sitting at my computer, 
going through 500 images and I find, you know, the name of an ancestor and he's getting rations from the Freedmen's Bureau where he's getting bacon and a coat and a broom. And the clue was where he was living. Sometimes it's that small. So again, it's possible. I think with the expansion, especially of records um, with regard to probates, where it's not just the decedent or the person that has died, but all the associated names are within that will and that inventory, including enslaved people, that's opening up such a huge amount of stuff to people. Whereas before you would, you would need so many different leads. Now, you know, eventually soon, it's gonna be typing a name in a whole county or a parish, and you're gonna see all of the people named King who were listed on a will for someone in, in East Carroll Parish, Louisiana. In our next segment, I'll ask Nika Sewell-Smith about using our own DNA to find our ancestors. We'll check in with Christian hip-hop artist Lecrae on the education work he's doing on Atlanta's West Side. And we'll wrap with why we all need to get moving safely in our own space to make our community stronger. Perspectives is a community and public affairs program crafted with you in mind. If there's a guest you'd like to hear interviewed or a perspective you think should be explored, let me know. If you're old school, just write me. 1601 West Peachtree Street, Northeast, Atlanta, Georgia, 30309. Or message me via social media. I'm Condos Presley on Facebook, Condo29 on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening. Be sure to listen again next week at this very same time as we examine another perspective. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.